millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For the first major legislative effort of his presidency, Joe Biden proposed a $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, partly made up of billions in state and local aid, billions more for vaccine production and distribution, and direct checks to tens of millions of people to honor his campaign promise. A group of Republicans countered with their own plan, suggesting he cut it down by more than two-thirds. In exchange, they'd support the bill and give him the 60 votes he'd need to end a filibuster. Then something strange happened. Biden met with the Republicans, heard them out, and more or less said no. John Tester, a Democrat who represents Montana, said no. I don't think $1.9 trillion, even though it is a boatload of money, is too much money. Joe Manchin from West Virginia said no. If it's $1.9 trillion, so be it. Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, said no. There's agreement, universal agreement. We must go big and bold. Democrats have no desire to relive the hell that was 2009. Back then, Republicans strung Democrats along, sometimes for months, only to ditch them at the last minute or, as they did with Obama's stimulus, make it too small to do the job effectively. And so Democrats are now embarking on a complicated, multi-week parliamentary process called budget reconciliation, which is not subject to the filibuster, meaning the stimulus can be passed with a simple majority. But a lot of it will likely be tossed out by the parliamentarian who will rule that pieces that don't have a direct impact on the deficit have to go through regular order. Besides that, the chamber only gets a few bites at reconciliation through the entire first two years of Biden's presidency, meaning the rest of Biden's agenda will be subject to the filibuster. The availability of reconciliation has allowed the party to dodge the question so far of what to do about the filibuster, but that won't last for long. Soon enough, Unless Republicans have some sort of weird bipartisan epiphany, Democrats will face a choice. They can either keep the filibuster in place, or they can implement Biden's agenda. They can't do both. Earlier this week, we talked with Representative John Sarbanes about his legislation that would rebalance the Democratic process. Without it, Democrats could soon be relegated to permanent minority status. That legislation, too, can't be done as long as the filibuster is in place. But there are serious efforts to do something about that underway. Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley has been the leading voice inside the caucus for reforming or abolishing the filibuster. It was a lonely battle a decade ago, but the effort is on the cusp of victory. And, perhaps, not a moment too soon. Meanwhile, a timely new book has arrived on the scene, written by Adam Gentleson, a former deputy chief of staff to Harry Reid. It's called Kill Switch. The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. Gentleson joins us later in the show, but first, we talk with Jeff Merkley about his push against the filibuster. Senator Merkley, welcome back to Deconstructed. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So what was the moment for you when you realized that something was off about the idea of the filibuster? Well, it's really when I came back to the, the, the Senate in 2009 when I was first elected. I had 
I'd seen the Senate operating in the 70s when I was an intern for Senator Hatfield. I worked for Congress in the 1980s. I saw the Senate function as a legislative body. Think about the fact that uh, when Lyndon Johnson was majority leader for six years, he had to file cloture to close debate one time, one time in six years. Mm -hmm. Harry Reid, first six years, had to file cloture 400 times. That's the uh, you know, kind of represents the uh, decline of the Senate as a functioning legislative body. So you finally succeeded in getting Harry Reid to reform the filibuster in, in 2013. It, it only applied to nominations and it exempted uh, Supreme Court nominations, but it was still a major step forward. And just weeks before that happened, lots of people in Washington said this will never happen. And then weeks later, it happened. What changed to make it possible? What got you from a place of people being concerned to saying, okay, we actually have 51 votes to change the rules? What happened was the, the complete dedication of Mitch McConnell to delay and obstruct strategy. And he was just blocking all kinds of nominations to the court, to the, uh, certainly to the executive branch positions. And really trying to hamstring the Obama administration and any ability to uh, fill court seats. And it led to a conversation of all the senators in the old Senate chambers. Very rare thing. No, no staff, mm -hmm. no reporters. Everybody bared their souls and said, this is just a dysfunctional Senate. It can't be allowed to operate like this. And the Republicans agreed and said, okay, we're going to, to quit being uh, just a determined effort to block everything. And um, I, can, I can remember John McCain grabbing a fellow Republican senator who was about to try to launch an effort to block another nominee and saying, you can't do that. We must not do this. We're going to destroy this place. And it was only a few weeks after that that Mitch McConnell issued his edict that there was uh, going to be an absolute ban on any nominees to the D.C. Circuit Court, uh, the second most important court in, mm -hmm. our, in our country. And that was really the straw that broke the, the camel's back and caused Terry Reid to say, okay, uh, we tried, we did everything we possibly could to work this out, but Mitch McConnell's determined to damage the courts and damage the executive branch, and that cannot stand, and we thus must change how this works. What is the fact that the Senate Democrats are willing to use reconciliation this time around to get the COVID relief bill through, say, about their willingness to actually reform the filibuster? Because both you know, create a majority-only uh, process that reconciliation could have been used in 2009 for the stimulus, but Democrats decided ag against it then. So what has changed in the thinking and what can we learn from that about where they stand when it comes to the filibuster? Well, reconciliation initially had a very limited role, and that was it could be used to decrease the deficit. So a special bypass of the filibuster to decrease the deficit. Then what happened was that uh, when Trent Lott uh, was majority leader, he brought in a new parliamentarian who ruled that you could also do tax cuts that increase the deficit in reconciliation, paving the way for the 2001 tax cuts. The Democrats changed the law back. It was a Conrad rule when uh, Conrad was uh, head of the budget mm -hmm. committee. And then the Republicans got in power and they changed the rule again to prepare the way for the 2017 uh, tax breaks for the rich. And so we've, we've watched reconciliation be used for basically raiding the, the national treasury to give more money to the richest Americans, uh, doesn't it make sense that it should be able to be used to do uh, fundamental good work in healthcare, housing, education, living wage jobs for ordinary, for ordinary Americans? And so 
Uh, there's no hesitation in terms of it being a legitimate pathway to try to address these issues, but reconciliation can only be used on things that have a financial uh, impact, either through spending or through taxes. And uh, so it doesn't help us on the policy front. One thing that Adam Gentleson talks about in his new book and that former President Obama has talked about as well is the link between the filibuster and Jim Crow and the filibuster and hostility to civil rights. Uh, and that the, the, you, you can't separate the, the histories of those two things from each other. As, as that's becoming more broadly understood, is it having an effect on senators' opinion of the filibuster? Or are they still stuck in that, this idea that the filibuster is what makes the Senate special? I've met with almost all of my Democratic colleagues over the history of the filibuster, and you're absolutely right that is deeply tied to discrimination, to systemic racism, to the strategy of trying to keep Black Americans from voting. Uh, essentially, for an 80-year period, uh, the only thing that was blocked by the filibuster, the supermajority, was the uh, voting rights for Black Americans, civil rights for, for Black Americans. It was a courtesy that everyone should be heard before a vote was taken that worked fine in the early Senate. And it worked pretty well, well into uh, the, the 1900s. Uh, but as Southern Democrats uh, were looking for new ways to block uh, black political power in the South, they decided the filibuster was the tool and that they could dress up their racism, their bigotry, with the argument that this is just freedom of speech, being able to speak for as long as you want on the, on the floor. And uh, then that tool went through a renovation in the mid-70s. And something happened that nobody really understood at the time and most people don't understand now, but it went from being to close debate from two-thirds of those present in voting to three-fifths of the body. Mm -hmm. And that little tiny change doesn't sound much, but what it said was that previously, if you wanted to block debate, you had to be ready for a surprise vote at any point, and you had to have one-third of the senators present who wanted to keep obstructing, ready to provide that blockade. Once it was the members, uh, you had to have 60 votes of the, the members of the body, then those who were no votes, no for closing debate, in other words, they want to continue debate, they didn't have to show up. They were a no whether they were there to vote or not. Mm -hmm. So this meant there was no effort required to construct a blockade. And it's this no-show form of the filibuster that really enabled it to become such a powerful tool of obstruction. And by the way, it's important to remember this is absolutely in the face of our founders' vision for our country. So often mm -hmm. we hear, isn't the filibuster how the founders designed the Senate? And the answer is no, hell no, absolutely not. Right. We had a supermajority under the uh, uh, Articles of Confederation, and that supermajority paralyzed uh, the, the Congress. And so when they were in place uh, leading up to 1787, they said, absolutely can't let this happen uh, for laws in the future. It needs to be a simple majority. So they had a supermajority for special circumstances like, like treaties or overriding a veto, but they were insistent that in a republic, you can't have the will of the majority bow to the will of the minority. And you can see that in the writings of Hamilton and Madison and other founders. Mm -hmm. that, that history that you talk about is finally being unearthed and, and circulating at popular levels. How much does that matter to your colleagues when it comes to making the final decision whether or not to 
basically end the filibuster or to reform the filibuster? And how much do kind of pragmatic and practical arguments either work or, or work against the argument in your experience? Well, both are very important. As I met with colleague after colleague and, and went through the history, people go, oh my goodness, I never realized that this really came into force. Uh, as a racist tool to block civil rights for black Americans. I never realized the Senate wasn't designed this way from the beginning. I thought this was the design. I never mm-hmm. realized that the founders said, don't let this happen. So that was helpful uh, that, to set the stage in that manner. The other thing that was very helpful is people saw the horror show of the way McConnell in the minority exercised what I like to refer to the filibuster as the McConnell veto. Mm-hmm. And people are understanding more and more that McConnell, as an instrument of powerful, rich Americans, as an instrument of the fossil fuel industry and the banking industry, is basically saying, hey, support my team. I can block bills, even if I'm in the minority, I'm that powerful. I can block bills you don't like. I can prevent them from ever getting off this floor. So keep keep backing me. And it's a kind of a deep form of corruption. And watching McConnell exercise this delay and obstruct strategy previously, now Democratic senators are going, we get the game. We understand the game that's going on here. We have to actually do these things and we can't let the McConnell veto stand in the way. So the combination of the sordid history of the filibuster and the way it's been absolutely abused by Mitch McConnell have come together and shifted the views of a huge number of my colleagues. And speaking of anti-democratic practice, last episode, we focused on the For the People Act. And I kind of can think of that as a part one and this as a part two of two thematic episodes together. I've heard people say that at minimum, there ought to be a democracy exception to the filibuster, that you can't give the minority the ability to tilt the democratic playing field in their favor structurally and permanently. Is that being talked about around HR1 and S1, or, or is your objective, no, we, we just have to go for full reform? Well, there's many potential pathways, and they're all being talked about. And to your point, we have a responsibility to defend the integrity of the voting system. It is the foundation of our republic. We take an oath to the Constitution, and gerrymandering and voter suppression and dark money have done incredible damage to the credibility of the system. Before the 1975 revision, if you wanted to block a bill, you had to actually show up. You had to speak. You had to talk. And the imbalance that was created by the change where you have now the no-show filibuster, if you really believe in the filibuster, let's return it to the talking filibuster, Mm -hmm. where those who want to obstruct through additional speech get to do so, but they are going to have to be there, and uh, we're going to have an old-fashioned multi-week battle in an effort to say how important this is. And hopefully, during that battle, the American people will say, what is this? The Republican Party is trying to perpetuate gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. They're trying to perpetuate dark money. They're trying to particularly destroy our ability to vote. And so that so that there will be a cost to having that public ballot in time and in terms of the debate with the public. And hopefully we would come out on top and make it to a simple majority uh, vote in the end. The real exhibit A of everything you're talking about is is Georgia, both when it comes to voting rights and what the possibility of voting rights can do for the electorate and also the Republican response. You know, they are very busy right now writing all sorts of rules that are basically trying to eliminate mail voting in Georgia so that they can continue with minority rule down there. The way that Democrats ended up winning in Georgia and taking over the Senate was really by promising 
these $2,000 checks. McConnell is obstructing this. He's only offering 600. Elect us. We'll do the full 2,000. You now have Democrats who are saying, well, okay, we'll do that, but we're going to significantly narrow who we give the checks to, which strikes me as breaking that that campaign promise. I want to get your take on that too. And could could you support a bill that that ends up breaking that campaign promise in the end? And what would be the repercussions if, if that's how Democrats launch Biden's presidency? Listen, I understand why President Biden is reaching out, trying to find compromise on the $1.9 trillion. And uh, he tro- floated this trial balloon about changing the target audience for the direct payments. And you, as, you, as you've described, I would advise him if he were to ask me that that is not the place to compromise that if you want to see us lose a Senate race in, in Georgia in two years, when uh, Reverend Warnock has to uh, fight the battle again, then modify the promise made, <laughs> break the promise made uh, during the uh, Georgia runoff. Uh, I, there is, there's a lot in that bill that one could argue a little more here or a little less there. But I think when you have made that a central point of a key election and narrowly won that election, we all together better deliver on the promise. And are there enough Democrats you think who believe that that they would say, "Look, this is so important. We will we will block you from making this mistake." Well, here's what's going to happen, Ryan. The Republican ten, they're not going to to bend on the basic issue of their six hundred million. They're not going to bend much mm-hmm. because ultimately, Mitch McConnell is there with his obstruct and delay strategy. And his theory of power is prevent Democrats when they're in office from solving problems because it strengthens our case for replacing them. From the time he started Mm -hmm. applauding Gingrich with obstruction in the House under Gingrich's theory that that if you work with the majority, you don't really have a case for replacing them because things get done. And then in the Senate, he had tools that Gingrich didn't have. He had the nominations, which can take up an enormous time when there's not cooperation. And you had the filibuster or the McConnell, what we now should call the McConnell veto. Under that theory, they will never get to yes with Joe Biden. Joe Biden will make an earnest effort. It will fail. And then we need to pass this in reconciliation, and we need to make sure as we pass it in reconciliation that we have the full promise that was put forward in the uh, Georgia campaign. Well, Senator Markley, thanks so much for joining us on Deconstructed. You're welcome. Thank you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist. 
specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. That was Senator Jeff Merkley. Adam Gentleson is the author of the new book, Kill Switch. Adam served as deputy chief of staff to former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So th there was a section of your book where I kind of laughed out loud, and it, that, that might be a strange thing to say about a book about kind of Senate history and, and Senate procedure. And, and But first of all, the, the book is terrifically well done, and congratulations to you on that. Thanks, man. Um, but the, the section comes where you say that, you know, for basically for centuries, people have been reaching back to the founders and, and specifically to Madison to kind of uh, ground, you know, whatever it is that they're trying to argue. Say like, look, the founders were with me. Here are some quotes from Madison that, that support me. You do the same thing. I've done it. Everybody does it. Calhoun starts to try to do it in advocating for what becomes the filibuster. And you write that Calhoun had a problem that contemporaries like us who cite Madison didn't. And that was that Madison was still alive. <laughs> yeah. Because he was one of the youngest founders right. and lives to a very old age. Uh, and so he starts responding to Calhoun and tells him, look, uh, you're wrong. Uh, and it reminded me of that famous scene from the Woody Allen movie. You don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan's oh, really? work. Really? Really? I happen to teach a class at Columbia called TV, Media, and Culture. So I think that my insights into Mr. McLuhan will have a great deal of validity. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, that's funny because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. So, so yeah, just let me, let me, let me. Come over here, second. Oh, Tell I, heard, him. I heard what you're saying. You you know nothing of my work. How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. Boy, if life were only like this. Yeah, I, I have I have James Madison right here. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I happen to be James Madison. You know nothing of my work. And so, tell us a little bit about who Calhoun is and why Madison was so quick to tell him that he was wrong about how he was interpreting his views on, on minority rights in the Senate. Sure. And I, th I think I'll start by, by laying out sort of what, what Madison intended. And, and this is sort of awkward for me as I was writing the book because I'm, I'm not an originalist by any, any stretch of the imagination. But this debate gets so wrapped up in statements about how the Senate was supposed to be and, and the defenders of the status quo are so invested in claiming the mantle of Senate tradition that I thought it was, it was useful to go back and look at it. And I was surprised when you look at the historical record that you know, it's not really a close call that the, that the framers did not want the filibuster to exist and they did not want a minority to be able to block the majority. And so this is this is the system that, that Madison, more than any other individual, designed. And, you know, the vulnerability of Madison's system was always that it's a delicate balance. And he obviously wanted there to be checks and balances in the system. And he did intend the Senate to be the proverbial cooling saucer in a place where things were slowed down, a body that was more deliberative than the House. All of that is true. But what has happened, what Calhoun started to do, and what has happened since then, is that those protections for minority factions have been dramatically expanded far beyond what Madison intended to create 
essentially a veto power for the minority. And so Calhoun was the one who started to expand those minority protections into a minority veto. And so what the, the incident you're talking about was in the 1830s when Calhoun, the funny thing about Calhoun is, you know, he so he was a senator from South Carolina. He was sort of the principal defender of slavery in the Senate. He was a virulent racist. At, at the time when abolition was starting to take hold, you know, this is not an exactly an enlightened state in America, but but there was still a emerging consensus that, that slavery is is not good, even if for the only reason that it's bad for white people and teaches them bad lessons. Calhoun takes it upon himself to turn that around and argue that slavery is unabashedly good. He gives a speech on the Senate floor calling it a positive good, um, rejecting all arguments against it. Um, but the problem that Calhoun has at this point in history is that he represents a minority and slave owners represent a minority in Congress. So he desperately needs to increase the power of a numerical minority in the Senate. And so he starts expanding Madison's protections for minority factions into a veto. Um, he does this by arguing for the idea of nullification, which led to the Civil War. Uh, and that was the argument Madison responded to. And Madison basically said, look, you know, I think that there should be a role for the minority in the process. They should be able to state their views. They should be able to influence the process. But I resoundingly reject the idea that they should be able to stop the majority from doing what the majority wants to do. You know, hear the minority out, let them have their say. But at the end of the day, majority rule is the Republican principle. It's the basis of democracy, small r, Republican there. So yeah, it was an interesting exchange. Unfortunately, Madison did pass away in the 1830s. Um, so he overlapped with Calhoun for a few years. Um, but when Madison passed away, Calhoun was just getting started. Mm -hmm. And so with Madison out of the picture, Calhoun proceeded to... Uh, basically invent the filibuster as we know it today um, and and start expanding these minority protections to the point that they've uh, gotten completely out of control today. Right. You're somebody who knows Mitch McConnell well from your time in, in the Senate. And McConnell and Abraham Lincoln don't have much in common. But one thing I can think of is that they both idolized Clay, Senator Clay, yes. as their, their role model, as kind of as a great statesman. Henry Clay, kind of the the lead advocate of of the American system, uh, which kind of comes from Hamilton, you know, comes from Hamilton's idea that the federal government needs to be strong, needs to build infrastructure. He's the leader of the the Whig Party. In, in the book, you talk about him recognizing what Calhoun is up to and the threat that he poses to the functioning of of the Senate and trying to stop it. So, what did Clay do, and and why? This is an important point because I think people tend to think that. Folks who want to get rid of the filibuster and sort of restore majority rule to the Senate uh, are often cast as the radicals and the rebels. But Henry Clay, the great compromiser, was the very first person uh, to try to get rid of the filibuster. One of the very first filibusters that Calhoun launched was in 1841. It was against Henry Clay. Clay was trying to pass uh, a bank bill. Um, this was during the debates of the you know, establishing a bank of the United States, and Calhoun opposed it. Um, this was, you know, it wasn't about slavery, but it was really about slavery, right. just as sort of most major issues were at the time. Right, because the, the planter class didn't want to lose power. Exactly, and this, the bank would have been a shift to the northern industrial, you know, capital-based economy, and Calhoun opposed it, you know, because it was going to lead to the end of slavery in his mind, um, and he was probably right about that. And so he launched what is often recognized as one of the first modern filibusters, the sort of filibusters we'd recognize it today. There were sort of isolated incidents of obstruction before this, um, but this was Calhoun taking obstruction and marrying it to the idea of minority rights and protections for minority factions and their right to unlimited speech and all the stuff that we hear about from today, often from McConnell himself. 
And Clay was horrified. He did not think that this was the purpose of the Senate. He thought that what was happening was debate for the sake of obstruction, not debate for the sake of persuasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he moved to essentially uh, what we would describe today as go nuclear. You know, the Senate originally, it was not intended to have the filibuster, as we've discussed. Um, and, and one of the ways we know that is that it had a rule in the original Senate that would allow a majority to vote to cut off debate and essentially end a filibuster. This rule was eliminated in 1806 because it was never being used. Obstruction wasn't a major problem in the Senate at the time. Um, but, but here in the 1840s, obstruction had become a problem. So Clay, in the face of this new filibuster by Calhoun, Clay moves to restore this rule that would allow a majority to end debate. Calhoun is able to outmaneuver Clay and force him to give up on reform, basically by using the age-old tactic of delaying long enough that Clay had to choose between passing the bank bill, which was his top legislative priority, and the more abstract goal of reform. And as many folks have done over the course of the last few centuries, you know, for, faced with this sort of Sophie's choice, they chose their most immediate concrete priority over over reform. Um, but this was such a such a a change in the way that the Senate did business at the time that they still didn't even have a name for this. Um, no one called it a filibuster at the time because there it wasn't happening frequently enough to deserve a name. The name didn't come for another ten or twenty years later. But it was something that kept, that Clay was horrified by. So if if you are the type of senator who likes to style themselves in the tradition of Henry Clay, as as many do, um, you know, it, particularly Mitch McConnell, you should you should be an advocate of of getting rid of the filibuster uh, and restoring majority rule because that's what that's what Clay wanted. And so Calhoun dies in the 1850s, but later he does get the civil war he'd been longing for. Then you have Reconstruction. So the filibuster fades at that point because effectively the Confederate members of the Senate have left and they're only allowed to come back to the Senate through the 1870s. So they don't have enough people to even marshal a filibuster. So Reconstruction ends in 1876 and a lot of people think that Jim Crow just sets in overnight, but that's not really the case. Black Americans allied with white radical Republicans kept fighting on behalf of freedom for many years after that. And the campaign of white terror continues for many years after that, too. And you write about this pivotal moment 15 years later in 1891, which becomes the Republican Party's last major effort to restore voting rights to black Americans across the country, but particularly in the South. They had not completely given up on being the party of Lincoln. And so Henry Cabot Lodge is pushing this bill, which the Southerners start calling the Force Bill. It's basically a Voting Rights Act, putting the federal government back in the business of actually enforcing the voting rights and other constitutional rights that were in law. And again, the Southern senators marshal an historic filibuster. And for the first time since Clay, there's again an attempt to abolish the filibuster. Do I have that about right? Yeah, yeah, that's about right. I mean, th- there were there were some attempts in in the intervening years, but what's notable about this one is that this is this is one time where we actually had a recorded vote, um, so we could see that there was a majority of the Senate in favor of essentially abolishing the filibuster um, and a majority in favor of passing this this bill to end poll taxes um, and and restore voting rights or, or give voting rights to Black Americans in the South. And once again, it wasn't like the radicals pushing this. It was Henry Cabot Lodge. It's like a scion of the Northeastern establishment, um, backed by uh, Nelson Aldrich from Rhode Island, who is the senator who went on to establish the Federal Reserve. And it's it's the two of them, it's Aldrich and Lodge, leading this effort to, to reform the Senate, because once again, they just were appalled at the use of obstruction that was going on here. And you write about how they felt that they had won. And what's so fascinating about Senate Senate history is how so much can hinge on just a, just a, 
just a few kind of very ta- tactical blunders. Like on Friday, yeah, they locked it down, and then they went home to celebrate. Yeah, while uh, the obstructionists organized, rushed back, basically you know called a vote, and the Cab- Cabot Lodge side wasn't ready, and ends up right. ends up snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Yeah, like you said, the Friday before. They had the votes. They started bragging about it, and they let some of their members leave town. And so the the opponents realized that the the reform side didn't have the numbers physically present for a vote, and so they they rushed to call a vote when they knew that the reformers wouldn't be able to muster a majority, and they were able to scuttle the effort. This is one of those moments in history where you you really can sort of you know hypotheticals are always hard, but you can you can sort of wonder what what could have been different because. Look, you know, the history is that federal interventions to establish voting rights are generally successful. They were successful previous to this 1891 fight in during Reconstruction, and they were successful after this fight, after 1964. You know, when the federal government decides it wants to do this, it's not perfect by any means, um, but it but it does effectively extend the right to vote to people who were denied it, especially Black Americans. And, and this was at a time when the black population in the South was at 50% in some of these states. In Mississippi, the black population was 50%. In Alabama, it was like 36%. In Georgia and the Carolinas, it was about the same in, in the sort of mid-30s. So you wonder you know, how the course of American history would have been different if elected officials in the South had started having to cater to black Americans as early as 1891. You know, the George Wallace's and the segregationist senators who represented these states that had enormous black populations, would they have ever been elected? Um, how had how would Jim Crow have been affected? Could it have been ended earlier? And it's not it's not going out on a limb to say that if even a fraction of these enormous black populations in these states had been able to vote as early as 1891, if even a fraction of them had been able to vote, um, Southern representation in the South might have looked very different in in the decades that followed. And it's important to put this moment in its historical context too. And and people who didn't listen to our episode on the political history of Georgia can get more of that back back there. But this is a this is a time period where there's a a genuine multiracial populist movement going on. It's called the Populist Party. And it and it starts out um, you know led by this Georgian congressman named Tom Watson. Um, as this effort to to bring together former slaves and white white working class poor whites in the South to say, look, your your common enemy is 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 this person. You need to you know they're trying to keep you apart. And so this 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 project, uh, you, there's every reason to believe would have been would have been further fueled um, by a- allowing half of that coalition to actually vote. Right. When it couldn't vote, it, it descended into uh, a, a racist populism, racist, race, racist populism. And so you see the Democratic Party absorb all of the elements of all the populist elements of, of that movement, but they also absorb the racism of it. They say, we're, we're going to do this populism, but it's going to be white. It's going to be white populism. And right. you, you wind up with the great migration. Right. And the wages, right. And they start, you know, putting in statute, essentially, the wages of, of whiteness. I mean, mm-hmm. it was because these segregationist white supremacist senators were elected in states that had enormous black populations 
those senators were the ones who went on to ensure that Black Americans were cut out of the New Deal programs and continue to, to block anti-lynching legislation and, and other poll, anti-poll tax legislation that continued to come over in the 1920s and 30s. And one thing I, I want to emphasize to your listeners is that this isn't like pie-in-the-sky hypotheticals. These bills were passing the House. They had, mm-hmm. they had by wide margins, like it wasn't close. You know, you had broad consensus in favor of anti-poll tax bills of anti-lynching legislation and even starting the 1940s legislation to end workplace discrimination. They passed the House by wide margins. They came over to the Senate where they appeared to have the support of a majority of senators uh, and they had presidents of both parties ready to sign them. So, you know, it was only because Southern senators who represented these states with enormous black populations that couldn't vote innovated new ways. And I, I think you've conclusively demonstrated that there's a unique relationship uh, between racism, hostility, civil rights, white supremacy, and and the rise of of the filibuster. But Madison, too, uh, was a slave owner. So for people who say, okay, yes, it, I, I agree, it's rooted in in the racism of this of this country. But that but we're a different country today. So that's not an argument to get rid of the filibuster today. Um, what what would you how how would you respond to that counter argument? I would respond that the, the use of the filibuster is less explicit today, but what it continues to do is serve the same principle that John Calhoun sought to establish, which is to give minority faction veto power over what the diverse majority wants to do. And there is a structural imbalance in the way the filibuster distributes power that is still true today. Conservatives and reactionaries benefit far more from the ability to obstruct than progressives do. Mm-hmm. It's it's just a fact of, of what the project of the two parties are on a basic philosophical level. There's obviously some bad things that conservatives want to pass, but on balance, they're there to stop progress, to stop the expansion of the social safety net, to stop the expansion of civil rights, and to maintain the status quo. You write that the modern filibuster is quote, quieter and far more lethal than the old kind. Mm-hmm. I think when people think of the filibuster today, they still think of the old kind. The Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Senator, you, sir, I will not yield. Even Rand Paul or Bernie Sanders on the, on the Senate floor just speaking forever. Ted, Ted Cruz. When Americans tried it, they discovered they did not like green eggs and ham, and they did not like Obamacare either. They did not like Obamacare in a box with a fox, in a house, or with a mouse. But what do you mean by the distinction between the old filibuster and and today's filibuster, how we get there? The the main distinction is that you don't have to do anything to implement the filibuster today. All you have to do is send an email. Actually, I should correct that. You do have to do one thing, which is to send an email. (laughs) But you certainly don't have to stand on the Senate floor. You certainly don't have to hold the floor for hours and hours. And then on top of that... Not only is it easier to use, it's much more powerful because, you know, in the old days, you had to go to the floor and you had to hold the floor, speak at length, you know, and physically occupy the floor to delay the bill. And even if you did all that, the best you could do was Mm -hmm. delay the bill for a certain amount of time. Eventually, you had to stop talking, right? Even if you coordinated with some, some allies, you know, eventually this had to come to an end. For the simple reason that they were unable to raise the threshold for passage. The Senate was a majority vote institution for the first 200 years of its existence. And so once the filibusters in the old days stopped talking, the bill would come up for a majority vote 
and pass or fail on that basis. Today, not only do you not have to talk, but what you can do by just sending that email is raise the number of votes that it takes to pass the bill from a simple majority to 60 votes. And we've come to accept this idea that things need 60 votes in the Senate as normal, but this is a very recent phenomenon. It didn't used to be this way. Everything you think of when you think of Senate history in terms of the the great legislation that it passed, like Mm -hmm. Medicare, Great Society, the great compromises of of the golden age in the 19th century, all of these things passed in a Senate where you just needed a majority to pass bills. Even well into the Bush administration. You go back and look at votes, you see, oh, it passed 52 to 48. And you're like, what? Right. It just, you know, it it started to become more common in the 70s and 80s, but it still was not considered normal. It was still considered exceptional for things to have to clear 60 votes. So the reason the filibuster today is is both easier to use and more powerful is that all you got to do to implement it is send an email. You never have to show your face. You never have to sit on the floor. And what you do by sending that email is not just delay the bill, but actually block it altogether because you're raising the number of votes it takes to pass. This happened before McConnell became Senate leader, but this is what set him up to be able to deploy it you know, as a weapon of mass obstruction against President Obama, because all he had to do was make sure that one senator on his side sent that email, raising the, an objection to whatever Democrats were trying to do. And that one email raised the threshold for every piece of business the Senate was conducting from a simple majority up to 60 votes. And in our partisan polarized era, it's nearly impossible to get 60 votes for things. So he was able to block much of Obama's uh, agenda by doing this. The other main argument you hear, and you you, you touched on this briefly, but the main argument you hear is, well, uh, it's going to come back to bite Democrats if if they do this. And, And it's certainly true that Democrats are trying to build things. Republicans are trying to block things. And so the balance of power when it comes to le- legislation and a 50-vote threshold is toward is toward Democrats. And so they would benefit more often than not. But what if you say, okay, Republicans come in and the first thing they do is they want to abolish uh, all mail-in voting or they want to do national voter ID. Basically, they want to take everything they've learned over about voter suppression for the last 20 years, things that had been stopped by courts before they you know, held a supermajority on the Supreme Court and jam it through on a on a party line vote and, you know, lock in a permanent minority status. What's the argument uh, for that, that they would just do it? They're going to do that no matter what? Yeah. I mean, that, that's part of it is that if, if you're hoping for forbearance from Mitch McConnell <laughs> uh, or whoever would succeed him, who's probably going to be even worse, then I think that you're you're pursuing a short sighted strategy. You know, the idea that that if we don't get rid of it now, that it will be there for us when we need it, I think is wrong. I think that as soon as Republicans regain a trifecta and have something they want to pass that can get 51 votes but not 60, they're going to immediately get rid of the filibuster. Um, They didn't do it under Trump on legislation because they didn't want to have to pass a lot of the stuff Trump was trying to make them pass. They got they got their tax cuts, you know, through reconciliation, which is an end run around the filibuster. So that passed the majority vote. They tried to repeal Obamacare also on a majority vote. So the filibuster, they did that through reconciliation too. So the filibuster was no use to Democrats in trying to block it. They failed. After that, they were ha- after they got their tax cuts, they were happy. They nuked the filibuster for Supreme Court justices to get Gorsuch and Kavanaugh confirmed. So they got their tax cuts. They got their judges. They were happy. I think that they will get rid of it the next time they're in power. Our, our time in power, we need to use to get as much done as we possibly can. And the other thing that I think is important, um, this is a little fluffier, um, but 
it's really hard to take things away once they're in place. Um, mm-hmm. A friend of mine described this as po- progressive policies as a one-way ratchet. Once you ratchet it up a little bit, it's really hard to get it down. It's generally politically unpopular to do it. It was, you know, the politics of undoing Obamacare were horrendous, and that's essentially what what blocked Republicans from doing it. So, you know, I don't think Republicans look at that effort to repeal Obamacare, which took eight months out of of political capital and just completely squandered it and think that that's a good thing to right. repeat. I think, you know, Democrats should use their power aggressively, pass things they want to pass, try to reform the system as much as they can while they have power because Republicans are simply going to get rid of the filibuster and, and do whatever they want when they have power back. So in your chapter on the 1970s, you talk a lot about North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms, who who presents the a really interesting contradiction for senators who who think of the filibuster as part of the essence of the Senate. You know, you, you, you note that he's, he was the chamber's master of, of the filibuster, uh, but also that he's not really honored anywhere in the building. Mm-hmm. And it's not a high bar to get honored there. Calhoun has two, two portraits in prominent mm-hmm. places. You know, in fact, some of the photos of that uh, insurrectionist running through the halls of Congress with the, with the Confederate flag, you see Calhoun in the background right. of them. And so Calhoun gets honored, but not not Jesse Helms, the master of the filibuster from the 70s. So what, why is that? Right. Dixiecrat Strom Thurmond, a contemporary of Helms, has a room mm-hmm. named after him. You know, being, being a horrible racist, I mean, R- Richard Russell, who stated- Building. Yeah, he's got a building named after him. I mean, these guys were avowed white supremacists. They, they described themselves as that in their own words, and they were honored. Um, but Helms was not. I think the reason is that he, the, what the other guys did- the, what Russell and Thurmond and Calhoun all did successfully was they cloaked their white supremacy in the institutional myths and legends of the Senate. And Helms did not. Helms reveled in sort of tweaking the institution and sticking a thumb in it in the eye of its uh, self-seriousness. And so I think it's it's his failure to sort of engage in the self-mythologizing of the Senate that has caused him to be sort of erased from the institutional memory of the chamber because he he really should be recognized because he did more to change. And I'm not saying honored. Um, he was a very bad senator who did, he was you know personally racist. He filibustered the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday in the 80s, many other things in addition to that. But he changed the Senate and influenced it more than any other senator of his era. What he did was he pioneered what we would now associate with sort of the Ted Cruz wing of the party of forcing politically difficult votes and then taking those votes and feeding them into a grassroots fundraising machine. Um, Helms was the first person, I think, you know, a lot of the emails that, that clog our inbox today can be traced back to Jesse Helms. He did, wasn't doing it through email in the 1970s. He was doing it through what was called direct mail, which is literally you know, mailing somebody a postcard and asking them to put $5 in cash in an envelope and send it back to you. He was the first senator to use this system. Richard Vigory, who's sort of a famous Republican consultant um, who, who worked for Goldwater and then Reagan, built the system for Helms. And Helms would take these votes and feed them into Vigory's system. And he would use this very dark Gothic language, heavily uh, laden with racism, to say, uh, you know, liberals are taking over the country. They're destroying America. Black radical activists like Jesse Jackson are running the country. Send us $5 immediately so that we can stop it. And he raised so much money that he was, as an individual senator, 
on par as a fundraising powerhouse with the entire National Republican Party. And he he used this influence to start handpicking senators in other races the same way that you see sort of the Tea mm-hmm. Party movement doing today. And he became deeply influential both in the chamber um, of using these these obstructionist tactics and forcing these bad votes and in, in shaping our larger political system. You know, I, I, in that chapter, I talk about Ted Cruz sort of single-handedly forcing a government mm-hmm. shutdown with his, working with his colleagues in the House to do this in 2013. Uh, and I think that that sort of inside-outside strategy that they deployed was modeled on Jesse Helms. And so you were heavily involved with Reed's decision to quote unquote go nuclear or what what you guys were calling the constitutional option back in 20 back in 2013 do you think it's going to happen uh this time around you know do you see the the same conditions in in place to now remove the filibuster for legislation yes i do i think it is going to happen um, unless there's some you know spontaneous outburst of of bipartisanship um which I don't think is going to happen. But I, but I think it's going to happen for the same reason that it happened in 2013, which is that, you know, pe- people look back and think that, you know, we had this, you know, a bunch of senators clamoring for reform in 2013. That's not the case. Um, most of the caucus was reluctant to do it. Reid himself was on the record being opposed to the nuclear option for years. And it took five years of, of Republican obstruction under Obama for them to come around. I don't think it'll take that long this time. But the same conditions prevail, which is that senators are going to try to get stuff done through the other means with the filibuster in place, it's not going to happen. And they're basically going to face a choice between essentially giving up on their agenda or reforming the filibuster to get things done. And I'm well aware of the statements that Senator Manchin, Senator Sinema, and others have made. I'm happy to start this process, but I'm not going to bust the bird rule. I'm not going to basically get rid of the filibuster. We are going to work in a bipartisan way. But you know, the same the same stuff was happening in 2013. You had many senators saying they would never do it. You had Reid saying he would never do it. And, you know, circumstances change. And I think that Manchin and Cinema, you know, for better or for worse, genuinely believe that they can sort of facilitate a return to bipartisanship. But I think we're rapidly seeing that's not going to happen. And, you know, look, if if this was about Medicare for all or the Green New Deal, do I think that Manchin and Cinema would happily stand in the way? Absolutely. But what's going to become evident over the coming months is that they're not standing in the way of Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. They're standing in the way of the Biden agenda mm-hmm. and the basic success or failure of the Biden administration. You know, Kristen Sinema's uh, uh, Arizona colleague, Mark Kelly, is up for reelection again in 2022. Mm-hmm. You know, if he wants to get reelected, Democrats are going to need to pass things and, and do more than they can do through reconciliation. So at the end of the day, I don't think that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema are going to go to Mark Kelly and every other Democrat who's up in 2022 and to Joe Biden and say, sorry, we just have to sit here and stare at each other and not get anything done for two years because we have this deep commitment to this Jim Crow relic. I, I just don't think that that's going to happen. It will take time for those conditions to build, but not that long. I think we're talking a matter of months right. before it, it really gets, the pressure gets intense. So, right. The timeline is really important here because, you know, my understanding is that for, you know, HR1 and S1 uh, to be able to go into effect, you know, this is the For the People Act that we've talked about before, Go into effect for the 2022 election to to get in the way of some of the gerrymandering efforts that are going to be flowing. You know, once all of the census numbers are out, it kind of needs to be done by say April. Uh, you know, it needs to be enacted into law. April is not a hard deadline, but you can't do it 
obviously, you know, in the summer of uh, 2022 and expect it to be implemented in time for the next election. So do, do you think the timeline around the filibuster and the timeline for the necessity of, of that reform is going to line up? I, I hope so. I, I think in the sort of life cycle of Congress, you know, the summer is sort of the the unofficial deadline for this stuff. I think that enough people have memories of the summer of 2009 of, you know, going home for the Congress's month-long August recess in the summer of 2009 with Obamacare unfinished and having the Tea Party rise up out of nowhere and just completely change the political dynamics and basically destroy all of Democrats' political capital that they could never really claw back. So I think that you know, we're, we're going to go through the reconciliation process in the next few weeks and months. That's good. I'm glad they're doing that. Um, I have reservations about the process, but it's it's fine to use as a stopgap. Mm-hmm. You know, but I think that fewer things will get done in, in reconciliation than people expect. I think a lot of things will, will not comply with its very restrictive rules. So once you're done with reconciliation, say end of March, April, um, something like that, you're going to be staring at a pile of stuff that has to get done must pass bills, maybe not for Joe Manchin, like maybe Manchin doesn't care if DC statehood or or civil rights bills don't pass, but Biden cares. Biden cannot let these things go. And so by late spring, early summer, you're going to have a a pile of must-pass legislation that's not going anywhere. And senators are going to face a choice between reforming the rules and giving up, essentially, on the Biden administration, you know, a few months in. And, you know, look, if, like I said, if, if if what was at stake here were sort of, you know, lefty priorities, which I personally believe in, I wouldn't have much faith that they were going to do it. But because it's it's the basic success of the Biden administration, I think they're going to have to do it. And once that starts to come into view and the necessity of getting it done to pass anything starts to sort of settle in with senators, then you sort of enter this phase where it's like, there's a, there's a YOLO aspect to it, which is like, if we're going to do it, do it, and then pass a ton of stuff. And pass the stuff that's really going to matter when it comes to elections uh, and trying to tilt this playing field back towards closer to even instead of being, you know, dramatically favoring Republicans. So, you know, the political reality of it starts to set in. And I think the incentives take hold pretty strongly. We'll see. So the, the book is called Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. You know, I've read a decent number of books by, you know, f- by former Hill staff, and most of them are not any good. <laughs> well, <laughs> they're, and they're they're useful for like tidbits that you can incorporate in pieces or in my own book. But um, but this is a, a very it's like a very good it's a very good and readable book. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Well, I I was thinking about yours as I was writing it, so I wanted to I wanted it to be oh, well, there you go. readable and and fun like yours. Cool. Well, that's that's nice of you to say, Adam Gentleson. Thanks for joining us on Deconstructed. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be here. That was Adam Gentleson, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.